Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies for career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and thrilled you've joined me for another fantastic conversation. If you're new to this podcast, let me introduce myself. I am a nonprofit consultant, a keynote speaker, author of a book that's also titled Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, and the creator of a virtual mastermind leadership program. If you're looking to accelerate your leadership journey in the nonprofit sector, check out the mastermind page on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, for more information. Joining me in this episode is another exceptional leader, and it's Amy Dugan. She serves as the Vice President for Organizational Development for Special Olympics North America, where she leads organizational development efforts and a team that provides guidance to Special Olympics programs across the North American continent. Amy's got expertise in a wide range of areas, including CEO searches, onboarding, executive coaching, board governance, strategic planning, and much more. And Amy and I had a great conversation, starting with the existential question, how do you know if nonprofit leadership is right for you? We also talked about creating a culture that attracts and retains talented teammates, and also how to be a student of the craft that is nonprofit leadership. Lots of resources came out of this conversation, so be sure to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 219. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com, and while you're there, take a moment to learn more about Amy and the great work she's doing through Special Olympics North America. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Amy Dugan. Amy, thank you for joining me on The Path. Oh, thanks for having me, Patton. I'm excited about this conversation, Amy. You and I have a number of things in common, not the least of which is the Special Olympics movement. And I know that will come up in our conversation. But I'm grateful that you're here to talk about leadership in the nonprofit sector and in particular uh, I guess, well, there are two perspectives we can talk about, right? One is those that are thinking about moving into this sector and those that are leading organizations and how that impacts their leadership. So let me start with this question. You made a fascinating kind of quote in our previous conversation about you think it's important for someone thinking about nonprofit leadership to really keep their eyes and heart wide open. Talk about what you mean by that phrase. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, nonprofit work, is certainly for the big of heart, but it's definitely not for the faint of heart. <laughs> and, and um, Good way you know, to I, put it. <laughs> I, I'm always initially a little leery when I hear someone say they just want to, quote unquote, give back, you know, after careers elsewhere. Um, and for some, that may be very true. And hooray when it is, because they bring great perspective and expertise to the table. Um, you know, can working for your for a mission you care about feed your soul? Yes. Can it be rewarding beyond anything you could have dreamt? Of course. Can it make you a better human being? Many times. Yes. I mean, that's kind of on you, but you know, but you better be ready for the work. Um, I was having this conversation with a friend a few months back and I said, remember when that film, everything, everywhere, all the once came out. Right. I said, at first I thought it was going to be a documentary about running a nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> that would be appropriate. <laughs> exactly. So, so be ready for the work and, you know, this career. And I do, I do hope people embrace it as a career is neither some grown up version of padding your college application with community service hours or some altruistic coast to the finish into the sunset of retirement. Um, 
you know, we're, we're being looked to more and more to solve for unprecedented levels of need across an array of topics. We know we have governments reducing or eliminating services and support and reducing funding. We have many of our organizations still recovering from the pandemic operationally, financially, and possibly with regard to addressing the, the constituent and supporter attrition that occurred over the past two to three years. Right. We're at a time when tax laws currently don't incentivize individual giving as well as it could. And there's this, this greater demand from those we serve, whether we're talking about volume of needs, higher expectations, a greater array of services, or all of the above. But if you care about being part of manifesting successful outcomes and change, I promise you, this work will make you scrappy, creative, uh, resourceful, multi-talented, whether you wanted to be or not, and, and very, very resilient, um, because we need the best and brightest, because we are doing this yeoman's work of solving for some of the most critical complex and societally underpinning and impactful issues of our times. But I think there's also a self-reflection piece that speaks to acknowledging one's temperament. And by that, I mean, in mission-based work, there are these moments of instant or short horizon gratification that fuel why we do what we do. But simultaneously, there's also this long haul nature to nonprofit work. You know, most of us will work in the furtherance of missions that will be in existence long after our tenures come to a close. So, so how do you deal with that and feel fulfilled that you've made a difference? And I would offer maybe three strategies for consideration. One is, and this is something I'm a big believer in, to have and be able to see distinct bodies of work. Contributions you can point to and say, you know, that wasn't there before I or we did it. Things you can say you help take from point A to B or C or Z. Right. And, they, right. and they may not be big and flashy. Like, you know, think about that awesome personnel handbook or conflict of interest policy you created. <laughs> you know, nobody's high-fiving you for that, but it's important. And it wasn't there before you, or maybe it wasn't very good before you took it on. So I think having intentionality around recognizing, acknowledging, and celebrating your bodies of work is, is key to that fulfillment of when you are on a long journey um, around a mission. Yeah, well put. I think another strategy I would offer is to, and it seems so evident when you say it out loud, but as you're entering your career, it may not feel that way, which is to be purpose-driven. And the mission is the what, the how, and the for whom, but that purpose is why that organization, that mission even exists in the world. And for, for me, I fell in love 29 years ago with a mission that allows me to stand alongside others at the intersection of sport and social justice, two things that are highly important to me. Yep. Our ability to use the ubiquity and the power and the joy of sport as a catalyst for societal change really resonates with me and resonated with me from the jump. So I would ask those considering a career in the nonprofit sector to really reflect on some of these questions. What feels purposeful for you? You know, what's, what's that values-based red thread in your life? Do you know what kind of work aligns with your values, passion, and interests? And what matters? I mean, what really matters to you? And, you know, P.S., those answers will likely evolve over the course of your life and your career. So it's 100% okay right. to not have it all figured out from the outset. You'll, you'll know what excites you and intrigues you when you come across it. Um, and lastly, I'd say, as you embark upon a new opportunity, start with the end in mind. 
what do you want your legacy to be? Because you're creating your legacy every day. It isn't something we give thought to as we're approaching the end of our career, whether you know it or not, you write that story every day of your career. So I think being legacy oriented and minded can be helpful. Yeah, it's fantastic, Amy. And, and again, you so eloquently, one, characterize the nonprofit sector in a way that I think is important because like you, I have run into folks that well-intentioned as they might be, they don't fully appreciate, I think, all of the elements, as you said, the hard work and and the nuances of running businesses that happen to have a tax code as nonprofit, <laughs> right? And so you can't just come into this as, well, it's a feel-good activity that maybe I volunteered for. Now I can work in that same profession. I'm glad you said that. And of course, your, your big three there is a wonderful way to start out for our listeners pondering this sector. And well, let me ask you though, Amy, let's go back before we unpack that further. When you first came onto the nonprofit path. Um, did you have your eyes and head <laughs> and eyes and heart wide open? What, what what were some of the experiences you had over these 29 years that maybe led to the work you do now? Yeah. I mean, the short answer would be no, I didn't have my eyes open. I had my heart open. <laughs> yeah, I sure right, didn't have right. my eyes open, but I got them <laughs> opened and I got them opened by really great teachers along the way. So that was a blessing for me. But, you know, I think the seeds of the importance of service to others were really planted in me as a child. Uh, volunteering and advocacy for things right. that I believe were important to me have been staples of who I am for as long as I can remember. And you, you couple that with my Midwestern upbringing, where the values of hard work and humility, helping your neighbors, putting others' needs before your own. Yes. Um, I think that servant leader approach to life and work has been a part of how I've always operated long before it had a name or that I knew someone gave it one. <laughs> um, also always had a really strong aversion to things that were fundamentally inequitable, things that were just simply unfair or unjust. So I guess I had a predisposition toward advocacy and wanting yeah. to be part of the solution, but I really never entertained the notion of working for a nonprofit all the way through college and undergrad and grad. And, you know, I, I went into the for-profit um, sector. I went, worked for this little place called the Walt Disney World Company for about oh, yeah. 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I worked for the Juilliard School of Music in New York. And I will say this, they were both invaluable in giving me the experience and perspectives and acumen I would go on to apply to my nonprofit thinking and career. Um, but while I, while I was with Disney, I was, I'd become a full-time volunteer with Special Olympics Florida. Okay. Uh, and um, I got a call from the CEO with the opportunity to come build their marketing communications division and their brand. Um, it was, and it was a chance to start something essentially from scratch, which was yeah. really exciting and attractive. Get, yeah. Yeah. You don't get those kinds of opportunities too often. I thought, wait, plus I get the chance to do for a living what I was already doing for those 40, 50 hours a week as a volunteer on top of my actual job. Uh, well, yes, please. You know? <laughs> Sign me up. Exactly. And then flash forward 14 years later, and I had the same thing occur when, the, at the time, the gentleman who was the president of Special Mix North America called me about 11 and a half years ago uh, to establish the marketing, communications, and brand division for Special Mix North America. And again, it was just is one of those opportunities you couldn't say no to because for me, that that's what it gets me really excited to be able to set a vision, to be able to create something. Um, so I did that, and then about seven and a half years ago, I moved over to leading our organizational development division, and I. And that's really where I found my true calling, or at least my true calling thus far, I should say. Absolutely. That. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Um, 
but it allowed me to bring to bear all of my areas of expertise and interest and, and experience and all that institutional knowledge about the organization and the sector to bear. So, so in my current role, I lead our North American uh, organizational development team. And in addition to having the privilege of leading that team, some specific and larger areas of consultation and concentration in my portfolio include things like our executive searches, executive onboarding and mentoring, all things board governance, strategic planning, organizational structure, operations, financial health, capacity building, sustainability. Um, very passionate about creating products and resources that empower, equip, and educate our leaders through leading practice sharing, through connecting centers of excellence. We also have leadership training and professional development as part of our portfolio. And then the one that um, usually makes most people dive under the desk, but I love is uh, enterprise risk management, risk uh, mitigation and crisis yeah. comms. <laughs> so we need so, you to carry that torch, right, Amy? Not everybody wants to talk about it. Not always, but when they do, it's, it's you know, it's it, risk. Having a risk aware culture is another topic for another day, but it's yeah. very empowering. But yeah. so, so my team supports the strategic development and health and sustainability and excellence of our programs throughout North America, which is all of the United States, all of Canada and the Caribbean, which adds up to be about 80 independent special mix programs. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, and yeah. So I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say that is literally a greatest hits of nonprofit leadership, all the things you do and allows us to unpack many of them. Um, but yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you because, well, let me ask one question mm -hmm. as I mm -hmm. am interrupting a slightly here. I bet most every listener right now has heard and knows something about Special Olympics, but I bet in many cases they don't know the full mm. impact and scope of the organization. So tell us about Special Olympics. Yeah, it's amazing. You get on an airplane with a branded polo shirt on or you have a, have a mug <laughs> right. in your hand and people say, we're Special Olympics? Oh, that's great. And then you figure out, you know, they realize they may they not don't know really what we do. Know. Yeah, we yeah. don't know what you do, but we feel darn good about it, right? Exactly. Um, so Special Olympics was, uh, was founded by Eunice Kennedy Shriver, the sister of President John F. Kennedy, uh, started as a day camp in her backyard in Maryland in 1962. And the premise was that people with intellectual disability, she believed, could and would benefit from, derive the same benefits from participation in fitness and sport activities as anyone else. She was inspired by her own sister, Rosemary, who had an intellectual disability. And the Kennedys, of course, being a famously athletic clan, it was a it was a no brainer, right? It was natural for her to exactly. say, "Well, R Rosemary should have the same opportunities, and she'll get the same benefits as all the all of her siblings." You flash forward to from that camp and that that trial, that experiment, and you flash forward to our very first games at Soldier Field in Chicago in 1968, and now here we sit, 55 years later, and as we speak, as this is being recorded, our we have athletes from all over the world participating in World Games in Berlin, and we have millions of participants around the world, fueled by even more millions of incredible volunteers. And at the end of the day, our premises remained unchanged since day one, which is to create a more inclusive, accepting, respectful, and empowering world for people with intellectual disability through that joyous platform we all relate to, which is sport. But what we've learned over the years is it's it's much more than that. It's not just affecting our athletes. It's our unified partners, people without intellectual disability who play sport as teammates. It's their families, it's the volunteers, it's communities. So it might sound a little Pollyanna, but if we can take the most marginalized, one of the most marginalized, discriminated, invisible, isolated, 
populations in the world which crosscut every walk of life. Yes, you know, indeed. Intellectual disabilities, you know, Patton, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care where you're from, how much money you have. Yep. Anyone can have a child or a loved one or a friend or neighbor with an intellectual disability. When you take the ubiquity of sport and the ubiquity of intellectual disability, you put them together, there's no one who does what we do. But our hope is let's let us lift all boats because of that. Because if we can empower our athletes, um, inevitably that ripple effect is going to be making communities more respectful and inclusive for everyone. So well put. And uh, you and I both, of course, share a passion for this organization. I was fortunate as a college student to intern with Special Olympics International and had the privilege of seeing Mrs. Shriver up close. And so that has certainly influenced and inspired the work I've done in the 30 years since for many nonprofits. But yeah, you and I both share mm -hmm. a similar passion for an organization that represents so many good things. And of course, the show notes for this episode are going to uh, allow our listeners to connect, uh, you know, of course, Amy, to the work you're doing, but to Special Olympics in general. And hopefully they can find a listener, can find the Special Olympics in their area, locally, uh, at a state level, national level, or whatever it might be. Um, all right, let me jump into some of, again, you are literally teaching and training on these topics that I think our listeners are are certainly uh, concerned about and want to learn more. And, and you said it very well in the introduction about if I'm thinking about nonprofit leadership as a career path, um, talk about some of the attributes you think that are important that can, in fact, transfer. And, of course, you said beautifully, you know, you've got to have your heart and your mind into this. But are there certain attributes you found that translate particularly into nonprofit leadership? Yeah, I mean, you know, we... We've touched on the first part of the question a little earlier in the conversation, so to focus on that piece, the traits I see in successful leaders of all types tend to be, uh, you know, and again, you don't have to and probably won't possess all these things from day one. These are built over time, but, you know, it's, it's quite a list, and I'm sure we could, if you ask another person, they could give you another 20 things, but I start with having a mission-driven heart and a business head, because to your point, make no mistake, um, these are companies we're running. We are accountable to the public trust, Indeed. not shareholders, and, and we deliver impact as our product. Uh, we've all had that conversation that went something like this, especially if you live in the South like you and I do. Me, I work for nonprofit, them. Ah, oh, bless your heart. Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that nice? And maybe you might even get the head, the head tilt, the head cock as an extra bonus, you know, as part of yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So I would say, you know, remember, you, you nonprofit people of the world, you are legit professionals. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, and an attribute that I think builds upon the mission heart business head trade is that there's someone who can both share and operationalize a vision. Um, passion, vision, excitement, that's great, but at some point we have to have the rubber hit the road. Um, and I also think another wonderful trait for us in the same vein is people with entrepreneurial mindsets. We've got to be innovative. We've got to be dynamic and agile in order to compete, to be effective, and quite frankly, sometimes just to be respected as a sector yeah. and as legitimate yeah. companies. Um, the difference, I think, between those that floundered and flourished during and since the pandemic was those that flourished and emerged stronger chose to adopt unorthodoxy. They chose to adopt nimbleness, and they carried those learning forwards. The ones that put their heads in the sand and waited for things to, quote unquote, you know, get back to the way they were, they floundered. Indeed. And and there's still some of them are still significantly digging out or aren't aren't, aren't even here anymore. Um, I also look for people who have an entrepreneurial mindset 
Um, we have to be innovative and dynamic and agile in order to compete, to be effective, and quite frankly, I think, um, to be respected, yes, both as legitimate yes. companies and as a sector. And the difference between those who flourished and floundered during um, the pandemic, uh, those who flourished and emerged stronger on the other side of it chose to be nimble. They chose to pursue unorthodox solutions and they've carried those learnings forwards. The one who decided to stick their head in the sand and wait for things to get back to the way they were, um, they've struggled and some are still either digging out or they aren't even here anymore. Similarly, I love a leader with a growth mindset. Yes. That person who embraces the power of yet. Uh, I think that will serve someone well. You know, we're just not there yet. Uh, we haven't solved for this issue yet. It's really about recognizing that it's a journey to better, not the unreachable destination of perfection. Good point. Good clarification. And yeah. I'm glad and you I mentioned growth mindset, by the way. One of my favorite books is Carol Dweck's <laughs> yeah. Mindset. So if I can insert that, it may be on your bookshelf as well, I'm guessing. Absolutely. All, all hail Dweck. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but, and I think, you know, again, on kind of like the list of traits, focus and self-discipline are important. Yeah. A focus yes. on your organization's purpose and the ability not to chase shiny objects or get caught up in the noise and swirl of others' interests that aren't perhaps in the best interest or service of your mission. And the self-discipline to do fewer things, but to do the right things and to do the right things well. Uh, that's a mantra with my team that we think that's part of our rigor and part of our strength, that minimalism. I think we all also have a, it's good to have a healthy degree of restlessness. Yeah. Dis yeah. Dis good point. If we didn't have dissatisfaction with the way things were, why else would we even be in this sector? Right. Right. Um, and then of course that they are servant leaders in the true sense of the term, putting mission and others before self, um, and that they have no problem engaging in positional leadership. In other words, you know, I can lead from the front, from behind, or shoulder to shoulder as needed. Um, and the rest of the attributes, greatest hits, lists, I would say passion, courage, um, pragmatism, plus indefatigable optimism. Nice, <laughs> um, nice. And just the, the, the worst use of the word, in fact. Um, you know, and resiliency, because you're going to get told no. That's just part of the business, but resiliency also in the sense of the adage, failure isn't fatal, you know, learn from it, extract the lesson and move forward better because of those learnings. And, and last, but certainly not least, in fact, last, but most, I would say, there's a question I love asking leaders, which is what do you think the most important leadership trait is? And there's no right or wrong answer, right. but it's often an insight into what they value and how they lead or what they yearn for in a leader. For me, the answer has always been empathy. I think it's essential. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's not easy to get it right. It's easy to get it wrong, but I think it might be the most critical and powerful things we as humans and especially as nonprofit and business leaders can practice and model. So well put, Amy. Uh, our listeners ought to rewind that section because you provided a beautiful kind of self-assessment checklist of some of the characteristics and attributes that I think you and I both would agree nonprofit, successful nonprofit leaders uh, carry those. And that's uh, powerful. And it, in fact, is what moves missions forward. Um, something else you've seen up close, Amy, and I think related to this, in terms of attracting the type of person that you just described, you know, that has 
those attributes. Um, what kind of culture do you need or how can we create a culture at our organization that in fact will attract uh, the folks that have those attributes you just shared with us? It's such a good question, Patton. Attracting and retaining talent is probably the number one challenge I hear nonprofit leaders expressing currently. Again, we need those bright, incredible people in order to be successful and solve for these really big, hard issues in the world. But between um, tight budgets and the, the great donor myth of expecting nonprofits to operate with little to no overhead and simply yep. Yep. not usually having the tools or perks or options available to them that some of our friends in the for-profit sector do, and with a shift in how people want to work and think about their careers, it's as challenging as I've ever seen it. So to your question of what is within our power to help attract and retain, even if it's for only as long as we can keep them, the talent we need and minimize the disruption if they do move on, you know, a, a few thoughts I would offer. One, we say we want and need, you know, positive disruptors and brand ambassadors and ambitious people and legitimate leadership, but do we? I mean, yeah, do, right. do, do we truly embrace, nurture, and practice it? So I'd say start with having your walk match your talk if you want to retain and keep great talent. Your website or your job descriptions can tout these wonderful, progressive, attractive, energizing, buzzword things about your organization and culture. But when it feels like a bait and switch once you're on the inside, yes. people leave. And people talk when they leave. Um, when, when too many of the leadership acts of an organization are performative or too much of the rhetoric is gestural in nature, I don't think any amount of organizational longevity, size, or brand respect can carry you forever. And th this is where I think it's essential the board needs to be engaged and helpful. Everything, as you know best, Patton, you know, everything flows from leadership. So if the organization is underperforming, if it is if the organization or its workplace culture is weak or even worse, toxic, that CEO is not like likely to see it, to acknowledge it, or to transform it, as they were a big part of creating those conditions. Yeah. So Correct. I say, you know, know thyself, get real, invest in working on your culture and transitioning your leadership if it needs to. Um, you you just won't be viable or competitive in the talent recruitment space until you do. And and candidates know it. Right? You get that gut feel when you talk when you talk to the interview panel, does it feel authentic or like a rehearsed party line? Um, in addition to some of the, the common retention strategies that we all talk about, competitive pay, benefits, flexible work scenarios, professional development, so on and so forth, what can we do to address something I don't think we talk about nearly enough in our sector, which is the emotional and mental and usually unspoken fatigue of wanting to make positive change in the world and doing it under the constant duress of escalating need, yep. the, the treadmill of having too few or uncertain resources, little work-life balance because they're pouring themselves so fully into their jobs because they care, in addition to an increasing sense of sometimes entitlement or just generalized frustration and desperation in society amongst those receiving services that can sometimes manage, you know, it can sometimes come to form in less than civil behavior from constituents that they have to endure. So we talk about it, but what are we actually doing and offering to ensure their physical, psychological, and emotional safety and health? Are we actively coaching? Are we mentoring? Are we checking in on the whole human? Uh, are we conducting stay conversations to know what would help them choose to stay? 
And, and the one thing we really don't talk about, and apologies that this is a bit tangential to, to your no, question. No, no, it, it's related, yes. We don't talk enough about the emotional toll it takes on leaders to lose staff they care about and have invested time into. Um, there's, of course, the operational cost of repeating the hiring and training cycle, but often in nonprofits, you know, where our work is so heart forward and requires people being in the trenches day in and day out as a team, it weighs on leaders, I think, who truly care to see their people go, even when they know they've done their best to keep them for as long as they could, even when they know they're leaving speaks to their growth because of your leadership. So how are we creating an atmosphere that supports those managers of people to navigate that? And how do we get comfortable with the reality that sometimes, because of our fairly flat structures, people may simply have to go to grow and, and to frame those moments as opportunities to evolve a role or evolve what we need and want in that role. Are, are you seeing, Amy, because you're involved in a lot of searches, and, and again, you're lifting up the, the right things, I know, in terms of our, our need to provide and culture and environment someone would be attracted to. Are you seeing more, for example, flexible schedules? Are you seeing more investment in professional development, all those things that you want to see more of? I'm just curious, is it, in fact, moving in the right direction? You know, I think there's a good intentionality around it. I think you see it to some degrees, but it is still something that by virtue of resources, I'm sure yeah. nonprofit leaders are not able to provide to the degree or extent they would love to. And so, you know, they're trying to become innovative around how do you give them a, a hybrid work model, for example. How are we providing other forms of professional development that isn't the traditional spend $5,000 to send you to a conference kind of scenario. So I, exactly. I, think, I think people are trying to do it through gratitude, through recognition, through empowerment opportunities, stretch opportunities. Uh, and I think a lot of leaders tend to, for that person, you've got to know them to know what's of value to them, first of all, but then to be able to put into your buckets the things you know you can do that aren't going to impact your bottom line and the things that may, but are worth the investment in those leaders you want to retain. Um, I also think on the on the flip side of that coin, Nonprofits probably need to be preparing to some degree for the pendulum swing of all those folks who left the for-profit sector during the pandemic because they had a life epiphany <laughs> right. and flocked to the nonprofit sector and then realized, you know, I really like having a new car every three years. And yes. so there, there's probably going to be a, a quasi exodus back out of the sector um, that we should be preparing ourselves for. Um, I'm seeing that, some of that. You're exactly right. Yeah, and you know, and there's always been sort of what I call the mission carpetbaggers, those people who will be passionate about your mission right up until someone offers them ten grand yeah, more to go be passionate about exactly, it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you know, when it comes to the keeping folks, you know, the culture, which I believe really does eat everything else for breakfast, it's key. Finding people who are a good alignment and will feel aligned with you, who will help enhance and expand your culture, I think the odds become a little higher. You'll get folks who truly want to be with you versus just any job. And you know, on the topic of what you do to retain, it's not rocket science, but every one of us wants to feel valued. And so you want, want to feel like when you've sacrificed many other things in your life, in the furtherance of this organization or this mission, that that's acknowledged and recognized. Um, and then I guess my last comment on this topic would be, it speaks to when we can no longer wish to retain talent. And I think we have a leadership crisis in our sector, which is a lack of succession planning at all levels of the organization. Yeah, well put. Those who, you know, those who do engage in some kind of succession planning often 
come a little short, I think, and, and they stop at the CEO or senior staff levels of the organization. But that volunteer base, it's so critical. I mean, if our chairman, or our global CEO goes away tomorrow, or I do, you know, yes, there'll be some impacts, and I and I would hope we'd be the best, you know? <laughs> yes, but, I'm sure you would. But, but you've got good talent with you too, don't you? Or we, at that level? We, we do. But, you know, to me, when that boots on the ground volunteer, who is the one directly delivering the mission in the community goes away, yes, that's mission interruption, interruption full stop. And so what is your, you know, what is your leadership development and succession plan at all levels of the movement of all levels of your organization for all members of your overall workforce look like or on the board side right we, we see the same thing they rely solely on the mechanics of the bylaws and make the vice chair or chair like the chair assuming they're suddenly going to be capable of successfully executing that role so whether staff or volunteers or board it, it isn't about shifting one seat to the left it's about being intentional with your leadership development and pipeline so from where I sit, when we talk about this this idea of succession planning, a it's within our power. So yes. hurrah! Yes. Two, I think it has to be an evergreen mindset of the organization. As in, we're talking about it, we're normalizing the conversation. People aren't getting freaked out when you bring it up, and we're prepared for that planned or emergency succession of roles or duties. Um, and lastly, to think of succession planning as that framework for sustainability and decreased interruption of mission delivery and operations when those leadership transitions do occur. Yeah, so well put. And I'm glad you've underlined succession planning throughout the organization as something every leader, both current and aspirational, uh, needs to consider because we work too hard in these organizations. And and yet, you're right, you and I have seen gaps that occur because we weren't ready for that transition of the volunteer, the key volunteer, or some person on the team that may or may not be the senior most person, but yet they played a critical role in our success. So I'm glad. Amy, once again, you're lifting up the right things. And I, a couple more things I want to make sure we get to in this conversation. Um, you used the phrase, I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, the the positive disruptor, the positive disruptor as, as kind of an attribute or characteristic that you think is important in nonprofit leadership. But maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah, it's it's that um, that happy contrarian, the person, <laughs> the, the person who is restless and isn't isn't okay with the status quo, and is willing to push back because you know if there, if there's a motto of the sector, it's but we've always done it that way, right? Yes. <laughs> Which yes. is infuriating. So when you look at the traits that are attractive, um, you know, are you actually inviting that in? Are you actually inviting in those those fresh ideas and those different ways of thinking and those different voices at the table that, you know, it might it might feel uncomfortable for some who've been in that mission and in that work for a long time. But how do we open ourselves up to the new and how do we nurture the new and invite them in so that, you know, disruption can be a very positive thing? It may not always be, but if we look at it as a chance for refreshing and one of my favorite words i love to use this word to reimagine yes yes well and i just hope i i'm glad you're lifting this point up because i hope if they're board members listening we need them to be kind of enlightened to this kind of thinking right and we're not necessarily as we hire senior leaders looking to just keep doing things the way we were doing it we want to move forward and, and build uh, kind of positive momentum and I guess that's what you're saying, right? We need positive disruptors to take our organizations to the proverbial next level. Yeah, and we have to, as the, as the people who are welcoming them into the organization, 
I think we have to be able to get rid of the habits and behaviors and practices that we have been doing either out of habit or out of sheer institutional inertia um, and be willing to kill our darlings, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. no, no sacred cows um, because we, we can, we can sometimes cling to things and I'm, sometimes those things are no longer in the best service to us. Yes. Well put. Um, I've got one more topic area though, Amy, I want to make sure we get to, because I know you are a lifelong learner, a classic lifelong learner, and you've been such a good coach to others to be, be a student of their craft. So talk about how can you, you know, continually work toward greater mastery of the craft that is nonprofit leadership? Uh, so many ways. This is one of my, one of my favorite things. So I'm happy we're getting to talk about this, but you know, First of all, I'll say this. When I hire, because I, I think I think the previous conversation was so spot on of when you think about what's attractive, right? What what makes you want to come to this nonprofit sector? One, I think one of the really cool things about us is, you know, one of the first questions someone's going to ask is, can I grow here? And I think one of the really appealing things about our sector is the amount of autonomy and influence you can have in a nonprofit structure, whether you're whether it's out of necessity necessity or as a result of culture compared to some other work environments. So whether you're a more experienced leader or just starting out in your career, you have that opportunity. So I think that empowerment, that opportunity to really put your fingerprints on something is really attractive to people with ambition and that change maker blood in their veins. And, and what I look for when I hire, are you smart? Yeah. yeah. Do, you ha- do you have passion for mission-driven work? Do you have a killer work ethic? Will you bring something to the team that complements it or makes it stronger? Great. Listen, if you have those things, we can teach you the stuff, right? We'll teach you more about the discipline you've chosen, the industry, the mission, the how, all those things. Without those raw goods, it's hard, right? So we always say hire for character, teach to skill, because I want to build a team, not just fill positions. And I want to be somewhere that shares that ethos and how am I being mentored and brought along. So, you know, but there's an onus on the individual to participate in that as well. So as a leader, my role is to say, I'm going to introduce you to a lot of doors into the very same room called success. Yep. And I'm going, to, I'm going to pour energy into what's right for you, and we're going to see what happens. But the onus on, on the practitioner is to be that student of your craft, your functional area, the topics that are uh, related to it, your mission, your organization, the ecosystem that your mission operates within and is impacted by. Because I, in addition to what you will bring on board from those who are mentoring and coaching you, when you do that homework and you really start to get a mastery of what you're doing, I think it increases not just your efficacy, but your credibility. Because you've got to go out and make that business case for why your organization, why that issue. And so when you have a mind that is able to bring data, framing, strategy, texture to your conversations, it helps move you away from that nice do-gooder, <laughs> right, you know, right. you know, light to know you're bringing forward something that's relevant and urgent and needed and a value addition to that company or that community because you can make the business case for it. Um, myself, I'm a voracious reader and consumer of content, whether it's sector related um, and for profit, I will say. Yeah, because right. We can learn from both, right? Exactly. Because those trends are absolutely transferable to our business and applicable Indeed to our sector, if not simultaneously, then in short order. And at minimum, they're going to have an impact on us. So I think the minute you think you know it all or can stop being a student, 
you become increasingly unhelpful and irrelevant as a teacher, as a leader, as a champion of your mission. My role, for example, is one that requires knowledge across a lot of topics, some deep, some not so much. Right. Um, so my resources are voluminous and varied, but um, you know, a few I'd recommend in general, in addition to those that speak maybe more directly to, to one's particular role. And all these, by the way, they have free newsletters, resources. Yeah, good, uh, You don't have good. to sign up, sign up for a membership. Some of these are the classics, like the greatest hits. Um, and some might be more local resources, but you know, start with the National Council on Nonprofits. They've got several briefs and newsletters and excellent resources. Your state's nonprofit association, yeah. uh, Board Source, Chronicle of Philanthropy, Smart Brief has, you can take your pick from several themed newsletters around leadership that are helpful. Um, and then you can get into some like Nonprofit Pro, um, SHRM, if you're in the HR leaning area, right. of, course, of course, AFP. Uh, I must give a shout out to the Nonprofit Risk Management Center for the risk management people <laughs> listening, you know. We need you. We need you to <laughs> yep, say that. Do. Yes. Yep. But, you know, and then you have some of the great, you know, minds in this area. Your Joan Gary's, Blanchard, um, you know, and I love McKinsey and Company, Fast Company, Harvard Business Review. So you're really getting uh, an academic look and a whole and just looking at leadership and what's right, whether it is your industry or not, you transfer the knowledge. And then one that I enjoy that is also just a little irreverent and hilarious is um, Nonprofit AF, yeah. the blog by Voulet. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, you'll get a smile and, and some important information there. Exactly. So, you know, there's a there's a huge, huge list of, of things you can be looking at, but find the ones that work. And as you read them, you'll get a feel for the ones that can go by the wayside because you will not be able to keep up with them. So yeah, too much um, volume, right? But. Yeah, it's a lot, you know, and I also recommend seeking out any local or online philanthropy institutes or organizations that provide certification or classes. Um, I will right now insert a shameless plug for the Edith Bush Institute at Rollins, where I teach and I'm instructor yes, <laughs> as yes. well. Um, and also to seek out professional affinity groups for connecting. Uh, and I say connecting because I have a visceral reaction to the word networking. It's, I, I don't do well with that word. I don't care yeah, for it. But that's not um, what you mean though, is it? Yeah. Or, yeah. It's really about connecting. So for me, right. for example, um, I belong to the Greater Orlando Organizational Development Network, but I also belong to the Women in Sports and Events Network. Um, so finding those groups that make sense for you, not just the ones that are the ones you're supposed to go to, right? Where you're really going to get value out of that. So. I think, you know, at the end of the day, being a student of your craft is really about how do you leverage knowledge and connections to help you take better informed action to actually address the problems at hand? Because, listen, hope is a wonderful trait in humans, but it's a lousy business strategy. Yes, won't take you far <laughs> enough. And that's so well put, Amy, both a pep talk and literally you've given a wonderful array of resources to build a kind of personal curriculum right, of learning and, and ongoing education. And so for that, I'm grateful for all of these kind of insights and, and ideas. I guess closing thoughts, Amy, for someone listening right now, you've given good ideas about joining the sector, but anything else you'd like to say as we close? A couple of things. Never underestimate the impact and importance of great mentors who will guide you along the way and those leaders who will walk alongside you that you learn from every day. That is powerful. In my experience, more powerful than anything I've ever read, any video yes. I've ever watched, any article I've ever read. So seek those out in your career and not just when you're starting out. I have mentors that have been with me for decades. I have some that I've, I've come to know in more recent years and they are 
valuable beyond measure. Um, I guess the last little piece of advice I would give is whatever you choose to do, be great at doing good. Perfect. That uh, could be a underlined statement on the show notes of this episode, which of course I'm going to do more than one plugs, especially given the resources, Amy, you're sharing. I want to make sure for someone driving right now, running, walking, and not in a <laughs> position to take notes, they need to check out the show notes uh, so they can reference all of this. And maybe the hardest question I'm going to ask you, Amy, is of all of the great books you've read, is there one you might recommend to add to this episode's uh, resource material? All right, Patton, this might be heresy, but um, <laughs> I own a lot of leadership books, as I'm sure listeners do. Some I may never even get around to reading, to be honest. Right. Uh, in fact, my executive coach conducted, a, a, I would guess, a mini intervention last year when I was going on vacation, and her edict was that I wasn't allowed to read any leadership books. Stop reading those books. <laughs> while I was on vacation. <laughs> now, she said nothing about podcasts, however, but um, you know, I really do enjoy learning about different takes on leadership and approaches. However, you know, there's rare... There's really something truly new when it comes yeah. to leadership in any given yeah. era, but you can sometimes find that person who frames it in a way that just it really clicks for you and makes sense. Um, so you can also spend an inordinate amount of time and money uh, on them or watching podcasts and videos and, and lead you down some rabbit holes. I've watched leaders and companies whiplash their leadership style or philosophy based on whatever the leadership trend du jour was. Right, right, right. And absolutely do I believe in continuous improvement. We can always learn, evolve as leaders, broaden and complement our thinking around leadership, but it can be overwhelming. So at some point, I think you have to put down the books. I know, uh -oh. man, I'm not, I shouldn't uh -oh. say that loud. <laughs> and, other, and other people's interpretations, I mean, yes, read them, but at some point you've got to put them down and really synthesize the best of and look inward and know yourself, know your personal brand and your strengths, know the kind of leader you aspire to be, and just be authentic to who you are at your core and build from there because otherwise you'll be inauthentic and it's just not sustainable. So you can, you can pull concepts from an array of sources, but at some point it's gotta be integrated with what is germane to you and what is so great and special about you. So, you know, if you're following in someone else's footsteps, you're really not walking your, your path. Yeah. But you twist my arm and I have to recommend anyone's work. <laughs> yes, but so you have something or I do. Uh, I do. I couldn't I wasn't gonna come empty handed. <laughs> if I have to rent you know, if I have to recommend something, I will recommend what I've inculcated with my team and my leaders, which is Brene Brown. Read it all. Read them all. Anything um, by Brene would be on all your list. Of it. Anything by Brene Brown. My team jokes that I Brene washed them. Yes, but, yes. Um, but I really do. It goes, and, but for me, that goes back to the high value I place upon empathy as a leader. And you know, so much of her work speaks to that. You know, of course, you know, some of them are a little more on the nose and more relevant, like Dare to Lead. But yeah, that's yes. what I was thinking. Right, right. But, but your point is well made. And she is a fantastic author and speaks to so many of the things I know that you and I enjoy discussing. So before we let you go, Amy, where can people find out more about you and the great work you're doing? Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn and it's um, just Amy Dugan, A-M-I-E-D-U-G-A-N on LinkedIn. So please feel free to reach out. And then, of course, um, for our shared passion, if people want to learn more about Special Olympics, it's just specialolympics.org. Fantastic. Amy, thank you so much for all of your wisdom and ideas and encouragement. And thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you, Patton. It's been my honor. 
Well, I hope you found that conversation with Amy as inspiring and insightful as I did. And don't forget about our website, patentmcdowell.com. Head to the podcast page where you can find the show notes for this episode. Remember, it's number 219. And there you'll find additional resources and information about Amy and the incredible work she's doing through Special Olympics North America. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd share it with just one other person who's also on the path to nonprofit leadership. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Go to our website, patentmcdowell.com, navigate to the podcast page, and click on the follow button, and that'll make sure you don't miss out on any of these weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And while you're there on that page, check out the Episodes button. It's at the top of the page, and you can explore thumbnails of our most popular episodes or search by topic or guest name. Thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector right now, and I hope you have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.